From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. I thought that the book would be successful in that it really does speak to contemporary American religion and politics. It speaks to why evangelical support for Trump ended up speaking almost prophetically to the events of January 6th and the Capitol insurrection. And so I knew it would get a a pretty wide hearing in spaces. What I didn't anticipate is that white evangelicals themselves would be the book's biggest fans. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Christian Cobus Dumay. She's a professor of history at Calvin University and is the author of A New Gospel for Women. She's written for Christianity Today, The Christian Century, and The Washington Post, as well as Religion and Politics, among other publications. She lives in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and today we're talking about her recent, very popular book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Professor Christian Cobus Dumay, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So I want to start in a kind of personal place because your book is encyclopedic. Like if a reader wants to get an overview of the last 60 years of political religion in the United States, they could not go to a better place than your book, Jesus and John Wayne. And because of that, I want to start very small. So in 1974, my parents moved from California to a moderately sized town about 100 miles south of Atlanta in deep southern Georgia, deep south. And when I was ready to go to kindergarten that next year, my parents sent me to a small private school that had been founded by a church and had recently moved to its own campus. And it was a school where the children that went there were almost exclusively white and Protestant. And I'm just wondering if, given that piece of information about me, what you can tell me about my school and what (laughs) I was doing there. Yeah, well, you know, I can't say what you are doing there because I think parents have an array of different motivations when it comes to where where you send your uh, kids to school, what choices you make. But there's a very good chance that school was a white flight academy, that it was founded by white Christians to get around the desegregation actions of the federal government. And what we see is this proliferation of schools being founded, private Christian schools throughout the South in the 60s and 70s. And um, of course, it was never advertised that this is a white flight academy, that this is uh, to get around segregation. It was advertised with religious language that this is, you know, we want to instruct our children in the ways of Christ, in the Bible. But it was also deeply uh, racialized as well. Well, and one more piece of personal information, because I take your point that we can't really know the vast 
number of different motivations that parents may have. One other piece of information about my parents particularly is that they both grew up in Muskegon, Michigan, which is not far from where you are in Grand Rapids. And so knowing that they grew up in Muskegon, Michigan, near Grand Rapids in the 50s and 60s, that should give you a little bit more information about my parents. And I wonder what that piece of information gives you to flesh out this story a little bit. Yeah, Muskegon, a highly, highly segregated community. And so that might might suggest that your parents were shaped by segregated reality and of seeing people of color as threats to the social order, as threats to their own children. Now, again, there are always many exceptions, but that history can introduce us to these contexts um, within which people make their choices. Well, and so we've begun uh, the conversation in a very idiosyncratic place, and I've been asking about my own personal experience. And I think a listener at this point might get the sense that your book, Jesus and John Wayne, is primarily a book about the civil rights movement and the religious response to the civil rights movement. Now, that's certainly an aspect of your book, but that's by no means a comprehensive overview of what your book is doing. So for my listeners who are now intrigued, why is our host asking all these personal questions and getting these answers? If you could in a couple of sentences, give a, an overview of the thesis of your book, Jesus and John Wayne. How would you describe it? Sure. It's, it's essentially a history of white evangelical masculinity and militarism. And so it looks at evangelicalism, not just as a theology, but evangelicalism as a culture, as a cultural identity. And it traces the history of this cultural evangelicalism over the last 75 years or so. And it shows how the assertion of white patriarchal power was always at the center of family values, evangelicalism, at the center of conservative evangelicalism, not just in terms of uh, kind of religious identity, cultural identity, but also political identity. What I love about that answer is you've begun to encapsulate a lot of the catchwords and the phrases that are going to be coming up throughout our entire conversation. This idea of evangelicalism, we're going to we're going to dive into that. Ideas of masculinism and militarism, that's going to point us to a term patriarchy that I'm sure we're going to get into as well. But for right now, if listeners think that they know what evangelicalism is in a kind of broad sense, probably they think of the phrase Bible thumper. Now, <laughs> In what ways is your kind of definition of cultural evangelicalism going to diverge from that kind of very superficial estimation of an evangelical as a Bible thumper? So one of the things that I do in Jesus and John Wayne is I push back against evangelicals self-understanding that if you ask evangelical leaders, what is an evangelical, they are going to point you to theological beliefs. So they uphold the authority of the scriptures, the centrality of the cross, crucicentrism is the word that they'll use, uh, conversionism, this need for a born again experience, and then evangelism and activism acting out of these faith beliefs. And if you go to the website of the National Association of Evangelicals, that that's what you'll find. I realized as I was researching this book, that doesn't really get to the heart of what it means to be an evangelical. And that's where just in talking with evangelicals and observing this world for a couple of decades now, I came to see that evangelicalism is really participating in a culture. 
in a community, but also in a consumer culture. And so it means having listened to hours upon hours of James Dobson's focus on the family radio growing up in your home. It means shopping at Christian bookstores, buying Christian books, reading Christian magazines. And this forms what it is to be an evangelical. There's some theology involved, but there's a lot more than that. There are ideals of what it is to be a Christian woman, what it is to be a Christian man, how to raise your children. It's social and it's political. And so that's really the understanding of evangelicalism that I'm working with. And it's very much a a definition of evangelicalism or a description is a better word than definition that resonates with evangelicals themselves. And uh, so many people, hundreds of readers have contacted me after reading this book saying, this is the story of my life. And that's because it really is a history of popular evangelicalism as ordinary evangelicals experienced it. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Kristen Cobus Dumay. She's a professor of history at Calvin University and the author of A New Gospel for Women. Today we're talking about her recent book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. A moment ago, you drew a differentiation between how evangelicals describe themselves on paper and what you actually observe in terms of evangelical behavior. And you mentioned that in your description of evangelical behavior, you've gotten a lot of positive response from evangelical readers saying, you nailed it, you got it, this is me. One word that rang out for me, though, as you were describing the behavior of evangelicals was the word consumerism. And you mentioned that there were products that helped to reinforce a kind of evangelical identity. You began to give us a little bit of a list of those products, but I wonder if you could flesh out that idea a little more of the relationship between evangelical identity as observed and this notion of consumerism, products to buy that help to shape and define and reinforce this evangelical identity. Yeah, in the book, I go back to the 1940s, to 1942, when you have the formation of the National Association of Evangelicals, and they're coming together, conservative Protestants saying, we're doing good work, but we're scattered. We're scattered across the country. We have our small churches, our Bible colleges, and we really need to band together. We need to unite to assert our influence across American culture. And they have a plan for doing that. They say, we need magazines with subscribers in the tens of thousands or even hundreds hundreds of thousands. We need to take to the airwaves. We need to do Christian radio, right? To reach the masses. We need bookstores. We need bookstores in big cities and in small towns across the country. And what's really remarkable is this is the plan that they hatch in 1942. And within 15 years, they have succeeded beyond their wildest dreams, I have to think. And Billy Graham is right at the center of that. And what you see is with the Christian Booksellers Association, you have Christian bookstores set up in the smallest towns. I mean, I grew up in Sioux Center, Iowa, a small town in Northwest Iowa. We had one bookstore in town and it was a Christian bookstore. And that's where you went for your graduation gifts. And that's where you went if you had a little spending money. And and that's really the source for uh, much of this Christian consumer culture that does reach into all corners that and then the airwaves, uh, the the Christian media. And that ends up really shaping the religious identity of ordinary evangelicals every bit as much, in fact, often much more so than the words that their pastor might be preaching on any given Sunday. In fact, the book that first opened this topic up to me, the, the, the topic of masculinity and militarism, was a very popular book in the early 2000s, John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. And that book sold more than 4 million copies 
every Christian I knew was reading it in the early 2000s. And this is what really clued me in, not just to this really interesting conversation around masculinity and Christian manhood in evangelical spaces, but also to the significance of this popular evangelicalism that scholars had really neglected up to this point. Now, when I hear you describe this kind of reinforcing consumerist culture that, that, as you mentioned, reached even into the smallest towns, you said that the town that you grew up in, the only bookstore was a Christian bookstore, and it was reinforcing this certain type of Christianity allied with a certain type of patriarchy and masculinity. The word that comes to my mind because I grew up in the Cold War in the 1980s is propaganda. Is that too strong a word, or would you use a different word to characterize what was going on here? Oh, I mean, it could be used. That's one word that could describe this. But there there are, you know, many true believers who are producing this as well. It can act as propaganda. Another word that you could use is spiritual formation, discipling, right? These would be insider words. This is, you know, really packaged and sold as all of these books, guides to being obedient Christians, to being good Christians. And also this was this Christian consumer culture, it should be noted, it functioned as a kind of you know, spiritual formation, religious formation or propaganda, if you will. It also was a huge moneymaker, right? One of the things I try to do in Jesus and John Wayne is point out whenever money is changing hands. You know, I just mentioned one book sold more than 4 million copies. That's a lot of royalties right there, right? That's a lot of money. And this is a massive industry. And what's happening is one of the stories that I trace here is how us versus them mentality flourishes in conservative evangelicalism, that God is on our side and anybody who's not with us is against us, whether that be communists or secular humanists or liberals or feminists. And therefore you can't trust the secular media. You can't trust the news media. You you should be getting your sources of information from inside the fold. And again, that works for propaganda purposes. And it also really pads the pockets of people who have a pretty big financial stake in selling these products. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Kristen Cobes dumay She's a professor of history at Calvin University and is the author of A New Gospel for Women. She's written for Christianity Today, The Christian Century, The Washington Post, and Religion and Politics, among other publications. She lives in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. 
Our guest today is Dr. Kristen Cobes Dume. She's a professor of history at Calvin University and is the author of the book A New Gospel for Women. She's written for Christianity Today, The Christian Century, The Washington Post, and Religion and Politics, among other publications. Today we're talking about her recent and very popular book, Jesus and John Wayne How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. A number of years ago, I had a conversation with one of the executives at Thomas Nelson Publishers. And in that conversation, he began to talk about the kind of balance that you referenced right before the break, this balance between royalties and what we, we might call the Great Commission. And so mm-hmm. this executive at Thomas Nelson was very proud of the fact that he had best-selling books. You mentioned books that were selling millions of copies. And he said, with the royalties from those, we can then produce cheap Bibles and take them to benighted areas of the world. I want to ask you about the self-aggrandizing narrative, um, that's, yeah. that's my word, of evangelicals who think to themselves, it is right and proper for me to make these kind of amazing profits on royalties for very popular books that are designed to sell like hotcakes, because then I turn around and I do the work of the Lord. Now, when I present that mm-hmm. narrative to you, how does that sound to you? And how would you think about that narrative with me? <laughs> that sounds very familiar. One of the things that I've really come to realize since the publication of this book, I, I had an inkling before, much more in terms of the reception of Jesus and John Wayne, is just how much evangelicals have controlled their own narratives, how much evangelicals have told stories about themselves in which they are the good guys, they are the heroes of the story, and they are always doing the Lord's work, right? And so <laughs> the ends will justify the means. And this book cuts through that. So I I guess very familiar, that kind of narrative of doing the Lord's work and something I hear a lot and very much at the heart of evangelical self-presentation. But there I would also say that many also wouldn't necessarily see the tension that this Thomas Nelson representative was <laughs> suggesting, that there was a tension between maybe the, the books they were publishing with mass appeal and then really doing the Lord's work, that there was a trade-off there. I think for many in this business and for many of the writers, they have conflated that whatever they do and that this money-making venture is itself the Lord's work. And these best-selling titles vary in quality and vary in terms of substance, but many of them are really not deeply biblical. I think it's fair to say. So this book, Wild at Heart, that uh, came into my hands in the early 2000s, a book on Christian masculinity, one of the things that was striking to me when I first read it was how little of the scriptures, of the Christian scriptures there are in this book, and instead to construct a vision of Christian masculinity, the author draws on Hollywood heroes, particularly on Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart, also on cowboys and soldiers, and figures like Teddy Roosevelt and General Patton and General MacArthur. These books are traditionally deeply theological and really do give a different flavor, a different shape to what it is to be an evangelical, because then these kind of secular models are baptized as Christian. And this is called Christian masculinity, which ends up shaping not just what it is to be a Christian man, but also, I argue in this book, it ends up shaping what it is to be a Christian. So there's a lot in that answer that I want to dig into before I I get to some of the bigger pieces of it, particularly the the masculinity patriarchal pieces. I want to stick with this idea of consumerism for just a, a few moments more. 
as you're talking about this, uh, one thing that came to my mind was a person who identified as a Christian but wasn't referenced in your book, Jesus and John Wayne, a self-help guru by the name of Zig Ziglar. And at one mm-hmm. point he said from stage, God didn't make the diamonds for Satan's crowd. He made them for God's crowd. And that this notion that God will prosper people and that you yeah. mentioned a lack of tension around the profit motive and the Great Commission motive of bringing the, the gospel to the world. But what that made me think of is the connection that runs throughout your book of a kind of self-help bootstrapping yeah. tradition. And there in Grand Rapids, of course, we have the DeVos family and the founders of Amway, which is one of the early kind of bootstrapping kind of self-help narratives. And I, 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 before we move on, I want to ask about the connection between this kind of rugged self-help narrative that that does point towards the kind of Westerns that you're talking about mm-hmm. and this kind of redefined, re-narrativized imagination of the evangelical personality. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a great question. And I touch on that a bit in Jesus and John Wayne. I could have done so much more. I hope to make up for that a little bit in my next book. But this kind of self-help and prosperity gospel is intertwined with not just popular evangelicalism, but the kind of popular literature that I'm talking about around gender and patriarchy too. And one of the clearest points of intersection in the story I tell is the book Maximized Manhood written by Ed Lewis Cole. He's the self-proclaimed father of the evangelical men's movement. This is back in the the 80s and he's popular through the 90s. And he really packaged this. The ideal Christian man is uh, living a life of maximized manhood. And so it will be successful. It will be strong. It will not be effeminate. It will be this notion of power, really, and then God's blessing and power being combined. And that's at the heart of masculinity. Um, So that's one point of a very clear point of intersection. But generally speaking as well, the individualism of prosperity gospel teachings, the idea that God will bless his chosen people, God will bless you for being obedient. So then by default, anybody who is successful clearly has been blessed by God and clearly deserves all of the power that they have coming to them. And so it's very tightly linked up with free enterprise capitalism and with uh, conservative Republican politics. And I think the DeVosses are a great example of, of those connections. I should say the DeVosses are also donors to the university where I teach. So that makes things interesting. So you mentioned this book, Maximized Manhood by Ed Lewis Cole, and that points in the direction of the the kind of central figure of the title of your book, Jesus and John Wayne, the narrativized cowboy, rugged, masculine figure of John Wayne. And I'll admit, when I first started reading the book, I had assumed that this was simply a metaphor that you had brought forward. What I came to discover in reading your book was that you didn't come up with this, but multiple people throughout this 75-year history have referenced John Wayne as the kind of totemic figure for a kind of Christianity from way back in his movie career to even recently vocal bands like the Gaithers are all bringing John Wayne forward. So what was it about John Wayne particularly that was this resonating point for this kind of reimagined evangelicalism? Mm-hmm. Yes, I did not set out to bu- write a book about John Wayne. I'll say that much. And as you suggest, I, I as I was researching evangelical ideals of masculinity, I kept bumping up against references to John Wayne. And at first, I was I didn't really take them seriously. And then I started paying attention and gathering these, and it became a motif that that is a thread that I pulled through the book. 
But John Wayne, he became an icon of American masculinity and particularly of conservative white masculinity. And he did through his on-screen persona primarily, but also off-screen. And so he rose to fame in the 1940s and 1950s as the hero of Westerns. And, but very quickly, he also morphed into uh, this kind of wartime hero. So he stars in Red River, this you know, classic Western. And then he soon after stars in Sands of Iwo Jima. And he ends up kind of bringing this cowboy, vintage American heroic masculinity to the battlefields of World War II, the Good War. And then he takes that persona and he brings it to the battlefields of Vietnam by starring in the Green Berets. And he just comes to stand for this heroic white masculinity, this almost retrograde masculinity, it becomes retrograde post-60s when a lot of Americans start to question many of these values. They question uh, white supremacy, right? We have the civil rights movement. They they question patriarchy with the, the feminist movement and they question American militarism with the Vietnam War and the anti-war movement. And he stands against all of this. He stands for these quote unquote traditional values. And he comes to embody that unapologetically on screen. He is the hero who will resort to violence to achieve order. If you think about all of his movies, all of his most popular movies, at least, he's the heroic white man who is bringing order through violence, usually by subduing non-white populations, right? The Mexicans and the Alamo, the Japanese and Sands of Iwo Jima, the Native Americans and, and the Vietnamese. And so he embodies this identity that comes to serve as the icon of conservative masculine and is a sign of what is being lost, what is being threatened by feminism and by liberalism. And that is the John Wayne masculinity that conservative evangelicals come to embrace. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Kristen Cobes dumay She's a professor of history at Calvin University and the author of A New Gospel for Women. Today, we're talking about her recent book, a New York Times bestseller, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. A moment ago, you were talking about John Wayne as this kind of visible rallying point for a certain type of evangelical masculinity. A phrase that you used rang out for me. John Wayne was the one who was willing to use violence to achieve order. And I think about John Wayne as the visible example of that. And we can think of other very visible evangelical leaders who have called for a kind of maybe even soft and in some cases uh, more hard violence for order. But now I'm wanting to ask you about some of the invisible figures that have also advocated for violence for order. And one figure that shows up almost like a spinal thread through your book, Jesus and John Wayne, is this figure that probably many of my listeners have never heard of, a man by the name of R.J. Rushdoony. I wonder if you could tell us briefly who Rushdoony was and why he's important to understanding this story of the last 75 years. Yeah, Rush Dooney is this, <laughs> he's often referred to as this kind of shadowy figure in American evangelicalism. And a number of people have written on him. There are books written about him, but a lot of times he's left out of the stories of kind of mainstream evangelicalism. 
One of the real questions I had to grapple with as I was writing Jesus and John Wayne was trying to figure out what is mainstream and what is fringe. And what I ended up doing is not dismissing fringe characters. And Rush Dooney, we can say he's a fringe character. He really extremist teachings, writing in the 60s and 70s, reconstructionism, Christian reconstructionism, arguing for a really rigid understanding of authority, of, of biblical authority authority and of social authority. And so it was a very hierarchical model where this idea that God has placed authority figures over individuals. And so pastors have authority over parishioners, men have authority over women, husbands over wives and parents over children. And this is the way that God has structured society in that to obey God is to obey the God appointed authority figures. He was anti-feminist, had a question whether women should even be educated, should work outside of the home. Uh, he was a white supremacist and advocated that America should structure its laws around his understanding of God's authority and God's laws. A right-wing figure, extreme by any stretch. What I do, though, is examine how his extremist teachings both influence mainstream evangelicalism, influence people like, like Howard Phillips and organizations like the Council for National Policy, really infiltrated conservative white evangelicalism in the 60s and 70s and even up to the present day. But then I also show how his extreme teachings on authority and social hierarchy were not all that different from the mainstream proponents of family family values evangelicalism from people like James Dobson, who also really emphasize the importance of authority and the importance of obeying God-appointed authorities, the importance of patriarchal authority. And so what I do throughout this book is I, I hold an example of somebody like Rush Dooney, identify him as somewhat marginal, although influential in certain respects, but then show how his ideas dovetail very closely with the mainstream ideals of undeniably mainstream figures. Well, and, and I really appreciate that answer because there's a lot there that we can dig into. One of the things that I really liked in your book, Jesus and John Wayne, was to show that even though Rush Dooney can be dismissed as a kind of fringe figure, you place him in areas like the Council for National Policy. Like he was sitting alongside names like Ken Starr, you know, <laughs> who's a name that I was surprised to see show up that early because my first knowledge of Ken Starr, of course, is the impeachment hearings of Bill Clinton. But to realize that someone like Ken Starr has been actually active in these evangelical circles for much longer and has been sitting on councils with people like R.J. Rushduni, that knocked together some puzzle pieces for me that were really fascinating to follow. And that's why I say this book is encyclopedic, because readers will find those kind of connections on every page of your book, Jesus and John Wayne. It's so well-researched and so well-written. But that leads me to a question, because you, you talk about Rushduni as a figure in the background. I was surprised at the lack of inclusion. I think that there's only one reference to him of another figure that I would have thought would be very pivotal to your story, actually two figures, Frank and Francis Schaefer. And I'm, I'm wondering <laughs> yes. why they didn't factor more into your <laughs> oh, research. Oh, yes. I would love to talk about this one. They did factor into my research. And then I ran up against uh, stringent word count limits. And I had a several page section on Francis Schaefer. And I ended up cutting that down to just the paragraphs that you see. And it's a shame. And I shouldn't have done it. And I was desperate to come in under word count. And one of the reasons why it was so difficult to include Francis Schaefer 
concisely because he goes through so many different phases of his career. And so I had to map all of those out, pre-European Francis Schaeffer, then the Libri Francis Schaeffer, and then the more politicized Francis Schaeffer. And none of it changed the narrative. All of it reinforced the narrative that I already had. But then you have his son, Frank Schaefer, who also has some very interesting insights into not just the role that he played and that his father played, but insights into things like sexuality and kind of the personal and the political in terms of his own family experience. So yes, I have an entire section on the cutting room floor. Uh, I have files and I absolutely could have done more. And that was one of the tough choices I made. I will confess that my original manuscript, you've used the word encyclopedia a couple of times here. My original manuscript came in at 60,000 words over my word count limit. And so So I had to really cut things down. That's one of the choices. I'm not sure if it was the right choice that I made. Well, the joy of that, though, and you've made allusions to this, is that it sounds as if you have almost another entire book project ready to go. Right before we go to break, that might be an appropriate time to ask, what are you working on and what can we expect from you as a follow-up to Jesus and John Wayne? Yeah, I'm working on not more of the same exactly. The book I'm working on right now is called Live, Laugh, Love, and it is a cultural history of white Christian womanhood, which I examine through the lens of neoliberalism, post-feminism, and white supremacy. So looking at evangelical, not just evangelical, but white Christian popular culture, inspirational fiction, HGTV, direct sales marketing, and yeah, it's all in Live, Laugh, Love. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Christian Cobes dumay She's a professor of history at Calvin University and the author of A New Gospel for Women. She's written for Christianity Today, The Christian Century, The Washington Post, and Religion and Politics, among other publications. Today we're talking about her book, which is a New York Times bestseller, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Dr. Christian Cobes dumay 
She's a professor of history at Calvin University and the author of A New Gospel for Women. She's written for the New York Times, The Daily Beast, Christianity Today, The Christian Century, The Washington Post, and other publications. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. I've mentioned at a couple points in our conversation that your book, Jesus and John Wayne, is very popular, that it's a New York Times bestseller, that there's been a tremendous response to it. And so I guess I want to ask you, were you surprised by this response? And how have you interpreted the response that you've gotten? Yeah, you know, I I thought that the book would be successful in that it really does speak to contemporary American religion and politics. It speaks to white evangelical support for Trump, uh, ended up speaking almost prophetically to the events of January 6th and the Capitol insurrection. And so I knew it would get a, a pretty wide hearing in spaces. What I didn't anticipate is that white evangelicals themselves would be the book's biggest fans. The subtitle suggests that I'm not really catering to white evangelicals here, how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. The tone of the book throughout, it's been described by one reviewer as urgent and sharp elbowed. I think that gets it about right. It's not a gentle, but certainly not written in a way that is trying to woo white evangelical readers. And yet evangelicals have embraced this book because so many of them say it is true. It helps them understand their own experiences, their own lives. And so many have said, this is the story of my life, but I never understood how all of these pieces fit together. And it's actually an extremely emotional read for many evangelicals because they do recognize their own life stories in these pages. And they also see what it has been driving towards, where it has ended up. And many are able to see that, in fact, the fruit of this tradition is not compatible with their understanding of their faith, with their understanding of Christianity. And so it's actually a a deeply jarring experience for evangelicals. So what has happened is evangelicals themselves are reading the book. They are sharing it with friends pastors groups are reading it and you know adult sunday schools are re- are reading this book and it's become this grassroots movement within evangelicalism and including it within conservative spaces within American evangelicalism. And uh, the book is really disrupting uh, the stories that they've told themselves and leading to a bit of a what was referred to as the kind of evangelical reckoning in this moment. You you mentioned an evangelical reckoning in this moment, and you've mentioned that pastors are reading it, pastors' groups are reading it, that various groups are sharing it with one another. In that description, it sounds overwhelmingly like it's having a positive effect. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm wondering, is that your perception of the response that you've gotten to the book, that the net effect is positive, or have you also been privy to some of the negative effects or the pushback against the book? Oh, I've been privy to some pushback as well. Uh, I will say that I've received well over a thousand messages from readers and it's probably 200 to one effusively positive. So my inbox is is a pretty, pretty happy space for the most part. The negative attention, I mean, certainly is there. There are some critical reviews from conservative evangelicals, mostly that have a hard time recognizing that this is a work of history and not a work of theology and certainly not a personal memoir or an opinion piece. There are a lot of footnotes here. There's a lot of evidence. And yeah, it's a work of history. 
But it will, it also has gotten some attention. You know, Shapiro's Daily Wire featured it. And just yesterday, Fox News had a piece on it. Ted Cruz has tweeted about it. And it, it generates some pushback, I think it's fair to say. That's what I expected. I fully expected that. And that actually has been less extreme than what I anticipated. What I didn't anticipate was that so many evangelicals themselves would embrace it, would embrace the critique and would not just recognize themselves, but then would take steps and ask some hard questions. Things like, how have I been complicit in this? Somebody like Beth Moore has tweeted about the book and to her credit, she didn't just tweet about how the book helped her understand what has been going on in white evangelicalism and and what some of the factors that led her to distance herself from the SBC. But she also said that this book really confronted her with her own complicity in helping to build this culture and bringing us to where we are now. I'm fascinated by something that you said just a moment ago, because you mentioned that some of the critics had a hard time not seeing this as a work of theology or a work of personal memoir. And I'm, I'm yeah. paraphrasing what you said, but that speaks to part of the thesis of your book, that the Evangelical imagination has a patriarchal difficulty imagining women outside of certain roles. And so yes. the idea that this wouldn't simply be an opinion piece or a memoir sort of speaks to your overall thesis. Now, that's my characterization, not yes. yours. Have I got it right or would you say it in a different way? I think that certainly does characterize the response of some people to this. And that's something I was aware of when I was writing this book. I, I actually include very little of myself in this book. And there's a there's a paragraph in the introduction where I, I bring myself into the narrative. One paragraph, I talk about growing up in small town Iowa and attending a Christian college, which is the same college where Donald Trump gave his infamous speech where he said he could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and not lose any supporters. So that was one paragraph in the introduction where I bring myself into the narrative. And that was all. And I only did that after being essentially coerced by my editor because I knew how in the world of of Christian publishing, particularly when women are writing, that their authority it comes from their own experience. And I wanted to make very clear that this book is not my personal experience. There are some parts of it that match up with my experience, but this is a work of historical research. I'm a professional historian and it's a work of history. And so I ended up compromising. I agreed with my editor. I'll put that one, one paragraph in. And it's really interesting to see, you know, most people read it as you have, this is encyclopedic. This is, it's really seen as, you know, there's so many quotes in here. There are so many, you know, it's just the people words, their own words that I'm holding up. And many people say it's entirely objective. Now, as a historian, I have to say no work of history is entirely objective, right? I frame it. There's a narrative framing here and a critical framing, uh, but it is a work of scholarship. It's a work of history. Still, the way that evangelical, conservative evangelical men, some, not the majority, but some are reading this is, yeah, it's experience, it's emotional, which is funny because there's not a ton of emotion in, in this book. And that want to write it off by saying this was not my personal experience. Uh, the problem with doing that is that we now have thousands or tens of thousands of readers who are saying this is absolutely my personal experience. But for me writing it, it was a work of historical research. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Kristen Cobes dumez She's a professor of history at Calvin University and the author of A New Gospel for Women. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. 
I want to go back to something that you said a few moments ago. You referenced that people were beginning to see connections between your analysis in Jesus and John Wayne and the events of the insurrection around January 6th. I wonder if you could, for my listeners who maybe have not encountered the book yet and are eager to understand how this is relevant to their lives if they're not evangelicals, make some of those connections for us. What are people seeing in terms of where you left the book and (laughs) what we saw in the events of January 6th? Sure. I tell how over time, this emphasis on white patriarchal authority intertwined with uh, a a militancy, a kind of militant faith, this us versus them conception of the world evolved and how it evolved into by the early 2000s, this embrace of a Christian warrior masculinity, right? Where God has filled men with testosterone to make them aggressive, to make them so they can fulfill their roles as protectors of women and children, protectors of faith, family, and nation. And you see this kind of rhetoric, not just supporting patriarchal leadership roles and uh, supporting the submission of women, but you also see this in terms of U.S. foreign policy. And you see this in the virulent Islamophobia that emerges in the the post 9-11 era. Uh, You see this as really fueling evangelical commitment to not just to war, but to preemptive war. In the years after September 11, this was the time when I first started paying attention. This was when John Eldridge's Wild at Heart was so popular. And I, I started paying attention to how evangelicals were talking about masculinity and just how militaristic it was. This is the same time that we see survey data coming out of how white evangelicals are far and away more supportive of preemptive war, more likely to condone the use of torture. And you know, there's other statistics in terms of law enforcement and in terms of really using violence to achieve order, this kind of sanctified violence. And you can see that in terms of foreign policy and domestic politics. And that's the tradition that I trace. And I show how violence can be condoned not just tacitly condoned, but embraced. And, and when it is framed in this in this respect, that these are agents of God's justice and God's righteousness. Now, by definition, of course, with this us versus them faith, when you define that your own belief system, your own community as being on God's side, then God is always on your side, whether it's in terms of foreign policy in Vietnam or in terms of fighting the culture wars. And so this warrior masculinity does move to the center of cultural evangelicalism. There are so many books that are promoting the warrior as this image of Christian masculinity. So that's the backstory here. And then you see what happens the events of January 6th. And what I will say is the vast majority of evangelicals were not storming the Capitol on January 6th. And at the same time, within evangelicalism, there is a belief system that is available to many evangelicals that can justify violence for the sake of righteousness, violence to achieve order and to protect and establish the God-appointed authorities. For many evangelicals over the last four years, they came to see Donald Trump as the God-appointed authority who would lead Christian America. He promised to protect America. He was the this warrior who was going to lead the charge and he would do so 
so effectively precisely because he could be ruthless when needed. And so when that's the context, um, then you can see the events of January 6th. And what I was doing on that day and then the days after was looking carefully at how mainstream evangelicals were responding. There were some who denounced the violence. Most of those were the never Trump evangelicals. And then there was a lot of silence within evangelical spaces, just simply not commenting on it. There was a lot of denial. This violence was the product of Antifa infiltration. I saw a lot of that. And then I I started to see when that was pretty much discredited, a lot of rhetoric that went along the lines of, well, we don't condone violence, but and then what followed was basically you push us so far and this is where we'll end up. And so that's where I, I concluded not only white evangelical support for Trump, but also in terms of kind of allegiance to the, these right-wing politics and even authoritarianism should not be seen as a betrayal of evangelical values. But in some cases, we need to see this as the fulfillment of evangelical values as they've evolved over the last half century. I love that answer because, it again, listeners, if you want to understand what this book is doing, it is giving us exactly that. The events happening on the ground right now unfolding before our eyes, you show us the threads that weave into that over the last three quarters of a century. But something that you said in your answer made me want to ask this question, because you began the conversation today with drawing some distinctions. You talked about a kind of cultural evangelicalism or a consumerist evangelicalism. And just now you said that perhaps we can see January 6th in some ways as a culmination of a certain type of evangelical values. Mm -hmm. I recognize that you're not speaking as a theologian and you're not writing as a theologian, but Mm -hmm. I'm I'm about to ask you a theological question that's sort of based in the no true Scotsman fallacy. Mm -hmm. Is there, in your opinion, is there in your analysis, a core of purified evangelicalism that somehow we can point to and say, that's the good evangelicalism. And these manifestations are maybe aberrations or perversions of evangelicalism. They're not real evangelicalism. Or would you characterize it that we know evangelicalism by its fruits? I guess that's the choice that I'm giving you. It's a really great question, the way you phrase that. And this is where I will differ from many evangelical leaders and say, no, there is no pure evangelicalism. As a historian, I am describing what I see. And I think that the eagerness of many evangelical readers to employ this no true Scotsman fallacy is revealing. And I think it's deceptive in many cases. There are a lot of evangelicals, these are the kind of never Trump evangelicals who want to say true evangelicals real evangelicals do not do this, right? Real evangelicals are in church and they are attending Bible studies and they are just really concerned about raising their children. And, you know, they're good and pure and lovely motives here. And then you have this bad stuff going on over there, but that's fringe and that's, those aren't the faithful evangelicals, but history does not support that division. And in fact, when, what I do in this book is, okay, well, let's look at what does it, how how are they raising their children? What are they teaching their children? What does it mean to be a Christian man, to be a Christian woman? And this is where you are going to find these values embedded that support authoritarian understandings of the social order that support patriarchy that are deeply racialized. And that's where you will find these oppressive systems within the family values evangelicalism. This is what you're going to hear preach from pulpits. Now that doesn't mean that's the only version of evangelicalism that you will encounter, but it is enmeshed within this popular and religious and theological evangelicalism. 
And so I insist on holding those together. That said, I will confess to, if you pay attention to my subtitle, how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. That corrupted a faith is the, the clause that I, I really hesitated to include because that's doing exactly what I'm suggesting we shouldn't do. That's not a historical claim, right? Corrupted a faith is assuming that there is something pure that can be corrupted. That's actually a theological claim. But that is my attempt with this book of history to speak directly to evangelicals on their own terms, because evangelicals self-identify as Bible-believing Christians. This is central to their self-identity. And what I demonstrate in this book is that for all their talk of being even Bible-believing Christians, when it comes to their not just political values, but their cultural identity and their religious identity, so much of what they're drawing on is not, in fact, biblical. So much of their drawing on actually counters pretty clear biblical teachings of love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemies, turn the other cheek. We can look at the fruit of the Spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And they explicitly reject these teachings when it comes to what it means to be a Christian man, what it means to be a Christian. And so that's my attempt to say, okay, Bible-believing evangelicals, let me talk to you on your own terms and show you how much of your faith is not in fact quote unquote, biblical, as you have presented it to yourselves and to the world, how much of it has been shaped by cultural and political allegiances. I recognize that the discipline of history is designed to look backwards. It's not a prophetic, imaginative practice that you're engaged in. I'm an outside observer to evangelicalism. And so based on the analysis that you've given me in Jesus and John Wayne, you've told me that evangelicals are using your book to do real self-searching and soul-searching about their politics and their presence in the world. But as an outside observer, one who believes that the gospel can forgive and heal and reshape people who have been lost into darkness. Should I hold out hope based upon your analysis that evangelicalism can heal itself and right itself to become the positive force that it has wanted to be throughout American history, but it has not yet been? Is that a valid hope for me, or would you, in your analysis, dissuade me from that hope? <laughs> I would love to uh, hold out that hope with you. As a historian, I'm pretty pessimistic, to be honest. Uh, I was extremely pessimistic when I finished this book. I don't know if you got that impression or not. So much so that my editor, when he came to the end of it, he said, okay, Kristen, this is really depressing and you cannot leave your readers here. You can't, like you have to give them something. And I looked at it and I, I thought, and I, I told him, I've got nothing. I feel as depressed as you do. Like, this is not a good story that I'm telling. And he said, okay, I respect that. And then a, a couple of days later, he emailed again and said, just give us anything. And so that's when I gave him the last sentence of the book. Uh, what was once done might also be undone. And that's all I had for him. And he said, fine, I'll take it. What's interesting, though, is how many readers have clung to that last sentence and firmly believe it is true and want to make it true. So I have a bit more hope now. That said, what I'm seeing within evangelical spaces, both in response to this book and just as part of a broader reckoning right now is dramatic change on an individual level. So many 
evangelicals are saying, this is not okay. This is not the faith that I, I have professed and I need to change. I need to leave my church or I need to reform my church or I need to leave this institution or organization or I need to change it. And that is happening across the country right now within evangelical spaces. And the divides are cutting through churches and they are cutting through families and it is real and, and the divisions uh, run deep. What I am not seeing is much in the way of institutional change. That's where I see stakeholders being cautious, stakeholders maintaining the status quo. That's where I see the power of conservative donors and constituents. And so what we see then are those voices of dissent being pushed out of those spaces. And so you see Beth Moore, right, leaving the SBC. You see Russell Moore leaving the SBC. You see this repeated across the country in individual spaces, usually quietly. People fighting for change and then giving up and leaving those spaces. What that means then is those spaces persist in maintaining the status quo, or if anything, they become more radicalized because those voices of dissent are no longer in the midst. So institutionally, I'm quite pessimistic right now. When we talk about evangelicalism writ large, kind of reforming itself, I'm just not seeing it happening at this point, not to the extent that it needs to happen. I see a lot of self-preservation going on. Individually, I see it happening all over. Well, Christian Cobes dumay I've said at the top of the show, and I'll say again, in my academic training, I bumped up against a lot of the history that you're talking about in Jesus and John Wayne, and I tried to pay close attention to it when I was learning it then, but I learned things and saw connections in your book that I had never even imagined were there. It is illuminating in the best possible sense, and it's terrifying in the best possible sense. I want to thank you so much for the time and the meticulous attention attention you gave in writing the book, but I also want to thank you so much for taking the time today to talk about it with me and my listeners. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. We've been speaking today with Dr. Christian Cobes dumay She's a professor of history at Calvin University and the author of A New Gospel for Women. She's written for the New York Times, Christianity Today, The Christian Century, and The Washington Post. We're talking today about her recent book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.
And we're out. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. These were such good questions. I really enjoyed the conversation. Me as well. I meant what I said. I found the book to be just utterly fascinating, so well done. And I thought I knew this stuff. I did. <laughs> and I learned so much from your book. Thank you for doing it. It's, it was, it's a powerhouse and it deserves all of the attention that it's getting. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I I hope that you keep writing. Please come back on the show anytime. I would love to help you sell a zillion more copies of all of your books. And just thank you for the work that you're doing. All right. Have a good rest of the day and a good rest of the week. All right. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye.